For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a book in our New Testament. And this is, was a letter written from a guy named Paul to this group of Christians in the, Mediterranean, the very large Mediterranean city of Corinth. It's in modern-day Greece. This city of Corinth was big, it was wealthy, it was multicultural, it was uh, famous, it was, you know, they had all kinds of things going for it. And, and so there was this new community of Christians here, but the, the, the Christians had been infected by the culture. And they were all really unbelievers. And so you've got this church with all these problems, so many problems. I imagine the Apostle Paul had a hard time knowing where to even begin to talk with them about the problems in their church. But where he does begin is what we studied last week. He begins with this concept of the backward wisdom of God. That God has a way that things work. God has a way of doing things. That there's a way that seems right to us. But as it says in the Proverbs... In the end, it leads to death. And so, the backward wisdom of God, in case you weren't here, just to recap this, this plays out in all kinds of different areas of our lives. The backward wisdom of God, you know, you imagine somebody hurts you. Now, worldly wisdom, this was the contrast we read about last week. Worldly wisdom says you pay them back, right? Now, um, you might even take them to court, which was a problem in the Corinthian church that Paul's going to get to in 1 Corinthians 6. They were, they just, that's all they knew. They, they would sue each other. That's how they resolved their problems. You know, you might be a little bit more pacifistic, a little more sophisticated. You might just withdraw from that person who hurt you. You might protect yourself. But what does God say? What does the wisdom of God say? Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoa, that's a lot different than I would come up with. Love your enemies to do everything in your power to do what's best for that other person, even your enemy. That's the wisdom of God. You know, you feel like you never have enough money. And under worldly wisdom, it says, well, you need to steal. Take something. That's how you get more possessions, more money. Now, you might be a little bit more sophisticated. You might say, well, you need to go and earn some money. Maybe you need to reduce your living expenses. Well, God's got a pretty different solution to your money problems. Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to charity. What? He says, you need to learn how to give money. And that's going to be the solution to your money problems in the long term. You're feeling lonely. Worldly wisdom says you need to get others to love you. Maybe you might go out and try a, a new sexual experience. Maybe that'll help my loneliness. Corinthians were definitely doing that. The wisdom of God says the opposite. It says you need to learn how to love other people. You need to do to others the way you'd want them to do unto you. That's what you need to do. You need to learn to give because it's better to give, Jesus said, than to receive. That's backward. That's opposite. You're longing for significance. Well, worldly wisdom says promote yourself. Put yourself first. You need to climb the ladder of success. You need to try to get other people beneath you. You need to look good in other people's eyes. The wisdom of God, Jesus said, actually take the lowest place you can. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be the slave of all. Because the last, he says, shall be first. You don't get any more backward than that. The last shall be first. 
You know, it's summed up pretty well in this Nike ad from many years ago that was recently revived. It says, the meek may inherit the earth, but they won't get the ball. I mean, I guess that works when it comes to rebounding. But when it comes to a life philosophy, it's backward. That's the way the world thinks. That's not the wisdom of God. God has a very different way. We need to learn to think like he does. Of course, last week we saw that the cross really epitomizes the wisdom of God. This is truly the ultimate symbol, the ultimate expression of God's backward wisdom. You know, worldly wisdom, you know, it's like you've got this gnawing sense of guilt. You know this life is not all there is. You wonder what comes up after this life is over. How do I measure up? Will I be evaluated? What does worldly wisdom say? Religion. Try to do some works to earn salvation. It's up to you. What are you going to do about it? You might try some religious rituals. You might have some meditation techniques. You might try to do enough good deeds to be on the scale to balance out the bad. Well, what does the wisdom of God say? It says you can't be good enough. It says everyone is a filthy, hopeless criminal in God's eyes, including you. And so Jesus said about himself, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to die on the cross, to offer himself in your place. God sent his one and only Son so that whoever puts their trust in him will have eternal life. That is backward. That is not the kind of solution we would come up with, but that's exactly the kind of solution God comes up with in his wisdom. And that's why we read last week that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're like, what? It's not about what I do. God, what kind of God can't defend himself? What kind of God would let himself be killed by humans? Well, our God, the God of the Bible. It's exactly his plan. And it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a deep satisfaction, a deep comfort in the cross because we know what it really means for me. We see the wisdom of God. This is where we are. And you know, you can't blame us for operating under worldly wisdom. You know, if this is you, all right, you better get used to stick figure theology here if you're going to be in my CT. So here you are. You're born into this world. You have limited understanding. You have limited resources. Your time is limited. Your money is limited. Your energy is limited. You're born into a broken world. You know, you're just, you're born into a place where things are not working right. Your lifespan is short. You're dying very soon. Loneliness, there's this deep gnawing loneliness that you have. And so with all these things, we have to go, me, me, me. We have to get things from me. I have to take, I have to protect myself. Nobody's going to look out for me. And that's all you have. Think about God, though. He doesn't have any of these problems on this list. His understanding, no one can fathom. He, he has existed from eternity past, will exist to eternity future forever. He owns everything that exists. He has limitless, he does not grow tired or weary. He, he, was, he sits on his throne in heaven. He's, he was not born into a broken world. His lifespan is eternal. He's not lonely. He exists in relationship. God is love. And so God has a very different perspective. Instead of having to take, take, take for me, like the worldly wisdom says, he's a giver. And he's able to give and he wants to teach you. He wants you to receive from him and then he wants to teach you how to give. Originally, we were supposed to be in relationship with God, and, and something's gone horribly wrong. We, we broke away from God. We turned away from Him. So God wants to teach us, 
And so we need a radical change to be able to grasp God's wisdom. It's not enough just to do some study. We can't just study the teachings of Christ. Study will be required, but it's more than that. There's something very radical, something deep that needs to change about you in order for you to be the kind of person that can even receive or grasp God's wisdom. You need to be taught by him. And first, Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus uses the birth analogy. He says, you know, your physical life started with your physical birth. He says, you need something like that for your spiritual life as well. There's a point in time where you come to life spiritually, your spiritual birth. Paul calls it, in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You can't make yourself be born. You can't make yourself a new creation. It's something God does to you. When you invite Christ into your life, God changes you permanently. He changes your eternal destiny. He also gives you his spirit. And that spirit can never be taken away. And that, as Paul goes on to say, because we have this new nature, because we have this new relationship to God, and because we have his spirit living inside of us, now we can actually start to learn the things of God, the wisdom of God. And so Paul's first goal when he came to Corinth, he was to lead these Corinthians to Christ so they could start to understand God's wisdom. Unfortunately, now, this is three or four years after he he started this group, he's been away for a couple of years. Now he has to go back and relay this foundation of God's wisdom. They seem to have forgot, they seem to be regressing. They're very immature. So he's talked last chapter about what's God's backward wisdom. This chapter, how do we begin to get that wisdom? And then really the rest of this book is how does that wisdom play out in all these different areas of their lives, in our lives as well. You know, you could really argue the rest of the book of Corinthians is Paul is showing them, here's how you're living for the me first principle, the wisdom of the world. And here is what things would look like if you were living, putting God and other people first, according to the wisdom of God. So that's, that's really what we're going to study throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. Tonight, how do we get the wisdom of God? How do we start to get it? I think that's enough for us to begin reading where we left off last week in chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. And Paul says, you know, the, remember last week Conrad Todd, he talked about When Paul showed up, he didn't use all of their fancy, sophisticated speaking techniques. You know, he knew how to use those, apparently. But he says, I intentionally didn't do that because I didn't want you to be so focused on my my perfect P alliteration that you miss the content of the gospel message. I wanted you to see what was really there, and I wanted you to focus on that. And so he says, it's not that I'm not into wisdom. I'm just not into your pseudo-wisdom. And I brought you as much wisdom as you could handle. I brought you real wisdom. He's trying to redefine what wisdom is for them. And so he says, I taught you as much as you could handle. Um, I'd like to teach you more, he says, but you can't even handle it. You're You're like delayed infancy, failure to launch. That's the subject for next week, so I don't want to steal our thunder, but that's where he's going to go with this. You guys are not maturing, so I can't bring you as much wisdom as I'd like to bring. We got to go back and relay the foundation. But he says, we speak a message of wisdom. We do speak wisdom. And if you were more mature, we could speak more wisdom, real wisdom. He says, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Here we see the origin of the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world. 
He says, it's the rulers of this age, not the, you know, the president or the king of Rome or whatever. You know, he's talking about the dark power behind those things. God has an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan. There are, there are fallen angels. And Satan does not think like God does. Satan definitely operates on the me first principle, and he likes other people to do that as well. But this wisdom that they were operating out of, it, James says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so the me first principle is really how God's enemy thinks. And that's where this comes from. That's what energizes this. No, he says, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Yes, something about God's wisdom was wrapped in a mystery. Something was hidden here. He says, none of the rulers of the age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Hmm. It's kind of a strange couple of verses here. I wish we had time to, to go into this. I've spent entire central teachings unpacking verses like these before. What he's saying here is, there was something about God's plan in Christ, God's plan in the cross, that was not understood by God's enemy. And in fact, he says, if Satan had understood God's plan, if he had understood the cross and the wisdom of God, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You ever read the gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' life, especially the very last couple of nights? Do you notice how eager Satan is to participate in getting Jesus crucified? Do you ever wonder why he's so eager to help Jesus go to the cross? If the cross is the key to salvation for everyone and is God's ultimate picture of love, looks like he didn't understand. He didn't understand what God was doing. The thought that God would give of himself in that way was so foreign. It's like, it's like the offense called a play and the defense was so not ready for it that he helped them execute it. You know, it'd be like the quarterback took the snap and turned around and ran the other way, all the way out through the back of his own end zone. It's just like, we didn't have any defenders back there. We did not think he would do that. That's what the cross was like for Satan. You know, what happened was God in the Old Testament, he had all these predictions that there's going to be this conquering king. He's going to come. He's going to put an end to evil. He's going to crush God's enemy. He's going he's to set up a, a, a heaven on earth, basically a place where righteousness reigns. There was a whole other set of predictions that said there's this other guy, this suffering servant. He's going to come. He's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He's going to be crushed. What the Old Testament never does is it, it never puts those two pictures together and explains it's the same guy. The conquering king is the suffering servant. The first coming of Christ, he suffers for sin, pays the price. Second time, he puts an end to Satan at evil. Satan did not see this coming. And if you want the full story on that, you should check out my Ephesians 3 teachings online. We've got a book, too, uh, Satan and His Kingdom for Sale, that goes into this. It's got a couple of chapters, chapters 4 and 5, and a couple of appendices. Very, very interesting, very deep. The, the Corinthians really couldn't, under, they really couldn't handle the depths of the mystery here. They were not ready. So Paul couldn't get into it any more than this. Um, <clears throat> But the point is, God's enemies couldn't understand his wisdom. That's why they played right into his hands at the cross. Paul says, however, as it is written, it's what no eye has seen, the wisdom of God. What no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. 
So again, it's you, right? And you know, he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's, you know, you're born with your five senses. And you can see, you can taste, you can touch, you can smell, you can hear, you can detect the physical world around you. But what he's saying is there's something else which no eye has seen, something no ear has heard, something you haven't even dreamed up, how awesome it is. And there's a, there's a sixth sense, there's a spiritual sense that you're, you're born with, but when you're born, it's broken. And so you can't access it, even though it's there. It's dead. You're spiritually dead, Scripture says, when you're born. And so, you know, you, could, you can imagine this. Let's say that you're born, right? And you're born, you come into this world, and there's this cell phone, right, strapped to your hand. And, you know, you're born, and you're a baby, and it's just a teeny little thing. It's like the original iPhone, you know, and you're a baby, and you're kind of banging it on stuff, and you're banging it against your head. You don't know what's going on. And then, you know, you start to grow up, and you get a little older. It gets a little bigger. It's like an iPhone 4 at this point. And, you know, as you start to become aware of your surroundings, you're like, what is this thing on my hand? It, it, it doesn't seem to do anything. But I, I just can't help but, I can't help but suspect that there's something else here. Why would this just be attached to me? But you go on, and you go, you know, you start to grow up, and, you know, you're growing, it's growing, you hit puberty, suddenly it's like an iPhone X, you know, and it's, it's got hair growing out of it, and you're like, what is up with this thing? Well, what God is saying is that you've got this, this hunger inside of you, this, this God-shaped hole, philosophers have called it. And what he wants to do is he wants, you to, he wants to hand you the batteries for this thing, so you can put it up to your ear and find out there's someone there on the other end. He's been there the whole time. He wants to talk to you. He wants the relationship with you. And it's there. And it's real. And perhaps you know that that's true. Various things have been said about this. Augustine, fourth century, he says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The restlessness that you feel. Blaise Pascal is sort of the one that has, is probably most famous for his writing on this, the, the so-called God-shaped hole. He says, this restlessness, this craving, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Solomon put it this way. He says he's planted eternity in the human heart. We know that this life is not all there is. We know I'm not just a big bag of biomolecules. My, my brain is not just a three-pound computer made of meat, as one MIT professor put it. No, he's planted eternity in your heart. You know that you will live on after you die. That's why you don't want to think about death. That's why we're scared of it. That's why we're in denial. Solomon says everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. Yes, there's an appetite that goes beyond a good meal. There's an appetite that goes beyond the satisfying of our physical hungers, which are real, but there's something more. There's a spiritual hunger, a spiritual vacuum. C.S. Lewis, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction with those desires exists. 
A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. Nobody taught that baby to feel hungry. It just does. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men, men feel sexual desire. There's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself, he says, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yes, that's exactly what that means. That's exactly what Paul's teaching here. There's something more you're longing for, and this is it. You've been wondering what that thing was, that cell phone strapped to your hand. God says, I want to communicate with you. I want to talk to you. If none of my early pleasures, earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly desires were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And finally, Francis Schaeffer, he says, every man is intention until he finds a satisfactory answer to the problem of who he himself is. Do you know who you are? Have you answered this question? Do you have a good answer to who you are? The Bible's putting forward a theory here. You're a physical, spiritual being. There's part of you that's physical, there's part of you that's not. You were made in God's image. Your soul will last forever. You were made for a relationship with your creator. God wants to give you that freely. It's not something you have to qualify for or something he charges for. He, his son qualified. He paid the charge for it. He's offering it to you freely. And so it's like we have this hole inside of us, this God-shaped hole. And, you know, it says no eye has seen the, the, the solution to this. Ephesians 1 says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. That's not your physical eyes. This is the eyes of your heart. These are, this is a spiritual seeing that he's talking about here. He says no ear has heard. You know, Revelation says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not hearing with the physical ear. It's a spiritual hearing that he's talking about here. Do you have spiritual sight? Do you have spiritual hearing? Philippians 3, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Not a physical grasping with your sense of touch. No, it's a spiritual grasping. And it's, you've been spiritually grabbed. He says, I reached to grab that for which I was grabbed. This is the, the spiritual life. It's our, fi our five senses and this spiritual sense, and they work together. And you can only draw so many right conclusions with the five senses if you don't have this, this sixth one here. It's going to bias your findings if you don't have this sixth one operating. But the sixth can shed light on the other five and can help you follow the evidence where it really leads. He says these things... But God wants to reveal to you. No human mind is conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. God has such incredible surprises in store for you. You have no idea. And so these things are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. And so God sends the Holy Spirit, who's a personal being, who's capable of relationship. 
he sends him to dwell right inside of that, that, that God-shaped hole that's been there. And you're complete, finally. And now you can start on, for real on your spiritual journey. God's spirit. And so God, that's how close he gets. He doesn't just tell you things. He communicates through his spirit directly to your own soul. That's how close you are. Talk about closeness. Talk about you long for relationship. There's the relationship you're really longing for. It, it, it basically takes the, the pressure off your other relationships because they don't have to be your God. You have a God. You have God. And now you're free to love. Suddenly God's love is flowing into you and you're in a position where instead of take, 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 me, 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 like the Corinthians, we can give. And we learn how to think like a giver. It's awesome. The Spirit, he says, it searches all things, even the deep things of God. These are deep things. The Spirit's searching them out to communicate them to us. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Yeah, I can't really know what you're really thinking. I mean, I can read your body language. I can hear your words. But unless I could, like, shrink down and crawl inside your brain and go in there and look around and see your thoughts directly, I can't really know your thoughts unless I could do that. It's the same way with God. God, there's like a direct pipeline because his spirit is now inside of you. There's new access, new levels of understanding. What we receive is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God. Yeah, God's spirit, that's what we've received. So we have the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of this world, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Yeah, that's how we can understand these things. God is communicating things to us, and we need to realize it's what he's freely given us. This is a free gift. This is grace. This is the logic of grace that's part of what we need to understand. We need to learn how to receive from God every day. That's the key to spiritual life, to spiritual health. Appreciating what God has given me, acknowledging what God says about me, and receiving from him. So I have something to give. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm saying things in the Holy Spirit. I'm counting on Him to apply these words to your heart. I'm counting on Him to make this real and make this living. This is not something I came up with. Just reading the Bible and saying a few things. It's God's Spirit is the one doing the work here. And so it's like, you know, here we are, we're looking at our Bibles, and I'm looking at the Bible, and I've got this internal commentary, this, this personal relationship. There's someone on the other end. I'm talking with God. As I read his word, as I sit under the teaching of the word, he'll do it throughout daily life as well. Especially happens with his word, though. The word, it says, is the sword of the spirit. It calls it in Ephesians 6. And so 
God nourishes us through his word and he explains things to us and we get a wisdom where the psalmist says, I'm wiser than all my teachers. We can have that in a very real way. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. They cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. I remember trying to read the word as a non-Christian. I actually sat in church for... 15, 16 years, 17 years, never got it. I would sit there and I'd be like, it was like in one ear and out the other, occasionally a funny story would stick. But I didn't get it. And then once I became a Christian, I remember reading the word and it was like the words were jumping off the page. There was clearly something different. Something had changed. It's the Spirit of God. I, I couldn't understand him before. I was, a, I was a, a natural man, the person without the spirit, the natural person, it says in some of our translations, can't understand spiritual things. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things. Your discernment will improve once you get the spirit of God. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Yeah, one of the things God's Spirit has to teach us is that the world has a certain view of me and of my self-worth, and I've got my own view of me. And what we start to learn is it doesn't matter what other people think about me. It doesn't even matter what I feel about me. What matters is what God says about me. And I learn not to be subject to merely human perspective, but I learn to see myself and I learn to see life from God's perspective. And that is a real mark of maturity that I'm not allowing what's around me to say what's valuable and what's not, but I'm allowing God to tell me what's valuable and what's not. And finally, he quotes the book of Isaiah and says, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. One of the great benefits of living on this side of the cross. Now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. And so even though none of us could possibly figure out the mind of the Lord, he has given us the Holy Spirit access to his mind direct. And he gives us insights. Super cool. Yeah, the work of the Holy Spirit. I just want to wrap up, spend our last few minutes talking about this. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian if you go on with God, you're going to start having amazing experiences of divine insight. What you'll realize is that God is talking to you, especially when you're in front of the Word. And that should be normal for a growing Christian. If this is all very strange to you, if, if you've never had this experience before, it's possible you're not a Christian. I sure spent 17 years sitting in seats in churches, not being a Christian. Maybe you're in that category as well. It is possible, though, that you have the Spirit, but you're like the person in chapter 3. It's not that you're a natural man or natural person, but you're a fleshly person. That's what he talks about in chapter 3, and you've, you're not listening to God's Spirit. You're not growing You've got delayed infancy. 
That's a subject we're going to have to wait till next week to talk about, but it, it's, this is something we're thinking about. This should be what's happening in your life. This is the, one of the great benefits and privileges of having God's Spirit and of being a Christian. This is something you should have. A few other things the Holy Spirit does. I don't have time to talk about all of them tonight, but one thing He'll do is He'll change you from the inside out. Yeah, you'll, there'll be things that before you did and you felt totally comfortable doing them, and now that you're a Christian, you're like, wait a minute, this is wrong. I had that experience very quickly when I became a Christian. Things that didn't bother me before, I was like, whoa, maybe I should stop that. And then I'd try to stop and I'd realize, I can't stop. <laughs> I'm, I'm addicted to sin, this particular area or that area. And um, there's a process of spiritual growth. He, he says it's like, it's like a tree bearing fruit. He calls it the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so, you know, the way a tree bears fruit, it doesn't, you know, grunt it out. It simply, simply sinks its roots into the soil. You know, the, the branch sinks its tendrils into the vine, and the life just flows through it, and the fruit is born, and it's beautiful. God wants to change you, not against your will, but in line with your will. He's going to show you a better way to live. It's great. And what it does is, because the wisdom of, of God, it's about loving other people, what you'll find is that your love relationships start to go really well. And it's no longer this string of failures, but you start to experience real long-term victory, including the hope for a successful marriage and family someday. It's one of the real great points here. I mean, there's a lot of benefits here. He will teach you how to pray. We don't, we don't know how to do this. But it says he's given us his spirit in Romans 8. And it will teach us how to pray because we don't know how to pray as we should, it says. And this is worth doing reading on. This is worth thinking about. This is worth asking God for, to teach me how to pray. And it's also, I, I thank God. I say, God, thank you that you give me the spirit of prayer. And I, I need you to keep teaching me. And this is how you develop your relationship with God. And that's, that's something that you need to develop, devote time to. But it's super cool. He will comfort you and pour his love into your heart, according to passages like Romans 5. In the midst of tremendous suffering, you can have joy. You can have peace. One of the great changes in my life, when I, the, the moment I became a Christian... The moment that it finally became real for me and my relationship with God became personal, I had spent years searching for love in all the wrong places. You know, I would hear things about God loves you, but I would just reinterpret it as this very distant kind of love, kind of like the federal government is looking out for you. And it's, you know, I mean, I guess it's true in some sense, but it's not in any way I can feel. And I was looking... I just, I wanted, and I had a, I had a good family. I mean, I, there was there's just something that can only be found in a relationship with God. And so it was just like, I mean, this incredible, overwhelming feeling of closeness and joy and peace, the moment that I finally turned in my heart to God. I said, I want to know your love for real God in a personal way. 
And um, I, I began weeping. It was, I was in a, a, a big meeting with a lot of other people. Everybody had their eyes closed and we were praying. And I was just thinking, man, I hope I stop crying before people open their eyes here. I was embarrassed, but I couldn't stop. And then for the next several weeks, like every time I, like, I would turn my thoughts toward God and drawing near to him, and I would just feel overwhelmed by this sense of joy, and I would feel the tears even to start to well up. I think God was really trying to emphasize, yes, this is where you need to turn. It didn't lie, I, you know. I, what you can have, though, what you can't have every day is joy. I believe we can find joy and peace every day. We need to find that. Feelings are fickle things, but... I do believe that joy is something God extends to you through his spirit. This is something we can have. Finally, he will assure you that you are his child. Kids need to know that they're in a safe place. Kids need to know that they have parents that love them. A friend of mine came from a real rough family. When she was three... Her mom took her to her grandma's, dropped her off, said, I'll be back, and then didn't come back for a year. That's not good for a three-year-old little girl. That sort of confusion, dishonesty, really betrayal. At such a vulnerable age from, from someone who's supposed to make you feel safe. What we need is we need to learn the safety and stability that we have with God and that he's not going to leave us. God is not going to leave you. I have kids. I have a daughter. And that's one of the things I've really tried to emphasize is that your daddy loves you. I am there for you. I am not going away. You are safe and you are special. Uh, every year I take her to this uh, daddy-daughter dance. And um, in fact, it was just this past Saturday. It was our sixth one. And um, been going since she was a really little girl. In fact, I, um, I got pictures printed from the first five dances we went to and hung them up on her wall right there above her bed. And one of the reasons is because I want her to wake up in the morning and see who she is. I, I, I want her to know that she's safe that she has a dad that loves her, that she's secure, that she's special. When I was out with her Saturday, you know, we, we, I really try to do extra special stuff this one night of the year. I got her corsage, we went out and got sushi, her pick. Um, and uh, we get a new dress for her and all this stuff. And um, I was talking to her and I said, you know, you know some of the reasons why I do this? And she said, no, and I said, one reason is because there's going to come a time where I'm going to want to take you to a dance and I won't be able to because you're not going to be available. But I said, so I'm trying to make the most of this time. And I said, also, um, <clears throat> I said, there's going to come a time pretty soon where guys are going to start asking you out. And some girls are so desperate for attention from guys that they will do pretty much anything. And... They will lower their standards. I want you to know how special you are and how you should be treated so that you have the willpower to resist 
when that time comes. And so you hold out for what you really deserve. I'm just trying to really, really pound this message into her mind. Who are you? How do you fit into this world? I tell her too, I, I'm building a relationship with you because I want you, to ha- I want you to have a close relationship with your Heavenly Father and at some point this is going to transfer more and more onto Him. It's funny too, my, uh, my wife went to give our daughter a kiss goodnight on Saturday night and this is like midnight and she gave Sophie a kiss and Sophie goes, oh, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> and my wife goes, well, that's, that's nice to hear, but I'm mama. <laughs> and Sophie goes, oh, I love daddy. <laughs> and my wife told me that. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and then she said, you know, you have really won your little girl's heart. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Not for my sake, although I really like it, but it's, it's for her sake. Because I know she needs it. I, I feel happy that she's getting it. I know this is what's best for her. This is what we need from God, and this is what his spirit allows us to do far more than I could ever do with my own daughter. I just don't have access to her, her thought, her, her, her mind. But we have the mind of Christ. And he has that kind of access. And we need to learn how to appreciate and thank him and live in this assurance and security and safety that we've no long, we haven't received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, Romans 8 says, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Daddy, Father. That's what God wants for you. This is what he's offering through his spirit as a spiritual person. What have we seen? Without the Spirit, you remain empty, longing for the God who's really there. You will spend your life hungering, aching, and then when you die, you'll spend eternity without Him. But He wants to give you all these blessings freely, eternal life, eternal security, His Spirit and all these other ministries of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do in your life every single day. But we need the Spirit to help us understand what God has freely given us. We need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened so that we can see who we are, who he is, what he's given us. Without God's Spirit, you're wasting your time trying to understand it. There's only so far that the intellect can take you. It's the objective and the subjective. And how come some Christians experience these blessings but others don't? You might be wondering. Well, that's our subject for next week. So we're going to have to spend a whole week unpacking that in 1 Corinthians 3. You can read the first couple of verses of that chapter if you want. Yeah, Lord, we're pretty confused. And uh, we operate according to the wisdom of the world. Your wisdom seems so strange. But the cross seemed pretty strange too. And I thank you that you have taken the sacrifice. You, you've, you've given out in a way that no one, even your enemy, ever dreamed you would. Thank you for the love that you have shown us and that you want to continue to show us on a daily basis, Lord. 
Thank you that you're the God who's really there, that you're the God who speaks, and that you speak with more than just words, but with spiritual words. I pray, Lord, that for those of us here who just simply have been cut off from you our whole lives, I pray that tonight could somehow miraculously be the night where they in their hearts turn and experience your love for the first time, a love that will never end. I pray too for those of us who have your spirit but aren't fully experiencing everything we could from your spirit. I pray that we would start to learn that assurance, that comfort, that joy, that love poured out in our hearts, that guidance on our growth, that guidance in our prayer lives, Lord, and that guidance in our lives. Thank you that you give these freely. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.